0: G'day and welcome to My Favourite Album I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them At this point, I think it has to be said that the reigning champion of the My Favourite Album podcast is Brian Koppelman, who, as of this episode posting, will hold the record for most appearances on the show. I've
1: been given a, an REM scarf as a, an automatic for the people scarf, which is funny because you know it's basically my favourite album of all time, and, and we've never discussed it on the podcast.
0: Well, no, you talked about it with Stephen Hyden, so like I got to I've done the that on, on that one. Yeah. We'll have to find another R.E.M. record to talk about sometime. But today we're not talking about a particular album. We are talking about the amazing music selections that is one of the most appealing aspects of Brian's incredible TV series, Billions. And we're currently at the studio where season four is in production and we're going to be looking back over some of what I think are the most interesting music cues from the first three seasons. Great. And spoilers within, most likely. And, I mean, I assume everyone listening to this podcast has seen every episode of Billions, so I shouldn't even need to say that.
1: Yeah, these shouldn't be spoilers. The show is very available to people.
0: Yeah. So episode four of season one, Metallica. You know, Harvester of Sorrow, Master of Puppets. You go back with Metallica, don't you?
1: I do. First of all, man, it is a pleasure to come back and talk to you again, Jeremy. I love the podcast and it's really a treat for me to spend time with you doing this. And as I was saying about the spoilers, the truth of it is... I'll try to talk around spoilers so that if you haven't seen the show yet, you'll be able to hang with us. If I do spoil anything, I apologize. I hate when people spoil things for me as I'm going through them. But it would be a good time for you to binge the show and then come back to the podcast. So, yeah, man, when I was young, I was an A&R person, which means artist and repertoire, for Electra Records. And I didn't sign Metallica. They were signed by a guy named Michael Alago was a brilliant A&R person. But Michael had left that label and I came to the label and I was very young, 22 years old. And I ended up being assigned to look after them, which was a huge thrill for me because I was a giant fan. I was a huge heavy metal fan as a kid and understood exactly what Metallica meant. And they took me out on the road with them a bit and I got to know them a bit. And so when we had this notion of putting Metallica in the show, I had a decent idea that we could make it happen. I remain very friendly with their managers, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch from Q Prime, who you would have seen if you've seen some kind of monster, the Metallica documentary. And we had this idea, we had heard a story from a fella similar to Axe who told us that he had brought his high school friends to a show like this Metallica show and that they flew in private. In fact, it was a festival and they choppered right backstage. As a, I'm sure people must at your festival, certain people. And so, this notion of Axe taking his childhood friends to see a band that meant a lot to him and them, but to be able to do it in this kind of style for a guy like Axe who was rebellious when he was young and who needed music like Metallicus to fuel him through that rebellion, through dealing with authority, through finding his way to his destiny that he had to claw and scrape for the notion of him getting a kind of validation through that seemed great for us and if you're going to use metallica in something you have to use master of puppets harvester just happened and it was perfect metallica told us that they practiced you know when we asked how the day would go they said we rehearse in this little room that no one's ever been in but the band before we go out and i said well could we film in there and they said yeah so we wrote the sequence to film in that room, and that just happened to be what James called out to play. And we loved it. You know, they probably would have played something else had we asked them to, but we loved Harvester, and we always knew that Master was going to be in there, as we always knew Master would end episode six of season one. Those things were planned out ahead of time. You this idea that Axe cared about this kind of music. From where he grew up and when he grew up, it made sense to us that he still considered himself a certain kind of rebel. And it wasn't necessarily the kind of rebel who would have been listening to punk, or he might have listened to some punk, but there was something about what metal represented that would have struck a chord in who he was. And lyrically, you know, Master of Puppets" is just the perfect song for the world of the show.
0: that's the thing i was because this is a situation when it's not true of all the songs we've going to talk about where the songs are existing in the context of the episode like metallica is in the episode you're making a point that acts as a metallica fan so how much of it when you're picking these songs out is like this is resonating not just with the moment in the episode but it's also jives with the character and it's something you would imagine the character listening to
1: Well, you're always trying to make this kind of perfect marriage of those things. Sometimes, sure, the song is just an overlay, and it doesn't matter if the character's listening because they're not listening in that setting, and it's more authorial. It's more the two of us, David and me, making a decision of the kind of music that we feel like would say something in that moment or would feel a certain way. Often it's representative of the character we're depicting. I mean, sometimes, like with the Goose Snow Cone, Or with one of the Isbell songs, it's the character, you know, Goddamn Lonely Love, Wendy's listening to Goddamn Lonely Love in the kitchen that's playing, and then the song carries us along at the end of the episode as a kind of extension of who they are, as a kind of a a calling to them in a way. So we'll do both. We'll do both things. (laughs) ¶¶
2: got green and
0: I got blue. Well, that neatly takes me on to my next pair of songs from different episodes, but both from the same songwriter and vocalist. It's Cover Me Up by Jason Isbell and Goddamn Lonely Love by The Drive-By Truckers, but it's Jason singing, which takes us back to the first conversation we ever had.
1: Yeah, the Southeastern conversation.
0: Yeah and I kind of when I started watching Billions there was a bit of the back of my mind going like how many episodes in before we get an Isbel song on the soundtrack and it was such a feature it feels to me I mean tell me if you think of it this way or not but like he's kind of the songwriter of the Rhodes marriage the way you use those two songs Well, Cover Me Up is
1: used twice in that episode in quite different ways. And and I remember originally when that's an example where we knew we wanted to use Cover Me Up over the course of the first season, but we didn't know where. And the first cut we saw of that episode, the music playing, what happens is in the beginning of this episode, the FBI is kind of barging into somebody's house in the middle of the night and you see the cars driving up you see the cops get out you see them go into the house you see them rouse this guy and originally what was laid in there was like tension music cop militaristic kind of music and it just didn't feel to dave and me like that was our show that suddenly you're pushing yourself in a direction that felt like well this music is sort of feels exactly like what's happening We also knew something about the character who was getting roused and about what was really going on. We knew there was a sadness at play that the audience wouldn't maybe know about for a few more episodes, but that we knew about. And so we had this idea that there should be like a mournful song playing, and that it could play at the beginning and the end of the episode uh, to tie this whole thing together. And so we put Cover Me Up, and I remember the people in the room at first thought it was an odd notion. I remember saying, "Eh, just let's put that song up against picture. And then the moment we put it up against picture, the, everything got elevated. The, suddenly, this thing looked like poetry, which is the thing, you know, you try so hard. And doing what I do for a living, you fail every day. Every day as a writer, you fail. Every day editing, you fail. And we work the best editors in the world and the best directors of our episodes and th- You just fail all the time. You hope to evoke a feeling. And it's so hard to evoke the feeling Because the feelings are, in the end, inarticulable. So communicating to the people you're working with and your audience, this notion that you have in your body and in your mind is very challenging. That's one of those moments where it it happened. It was exactly what we wanted you to feel. And that's because Jason's special gift is so strong. And probably because the connection... And when I say I, David and I make all these decisions together. He's my creative partner and all this stuff comes from the two of us together but my personal connection to Jason and his music is so strong and was so strong in that moment that somehow I think it all just added up to something greater than all of its parts and it really indicated something about the direction the show could go in our juxtaposition of music and picture
2: So leave your boots by the bed We ain't leaving this room Somewhere Cover me
0: up, and know you're enough to use me for good. Future got Jason Isbell.
1: Yeah, well, as I said on Twitter the other day, it's clear I'm never going to have to explain to anybody who Jason Isbell is ever again after Star is Born. That's that. Yeah. We just have to figure out how to get him a Tony.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Isbel on Broadway. I kind of wish we were doing this tomorrow because I'm going to see Springsteen on Broadway tonight and I, I wanted to debrief with you, but we'll have to do that well, some just time.
1: Email me or call me tomorrow. We can yeah. debrief. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. You've read the book, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You'll love it. I'm expecting to cry. I'm taking tissues. Yes. You will. Oh, I mean, dude. Yeah, you're going to cry. I mean, the whole thing's about him and his dad.
2: 111.
0: You've got like the most cues, as far as I could tell, in this episode, as any episode of the entire. Series, you've got well, we got And the Cradle of rock right at the center yeah. of it. Which other ones are you There's interested? Van Halen, there's Ryan Adams, and yes. you got Got to Serve Somebody, you got Dylan in there as well. Well,
1: that closing Dylan song, so there's been a Dylan song every season. And on your other podcast, I mean, on this podcast, in a specific episode, we're going to talk about Visions of Johanna, so we don't have to talk about that here. But each season there's a Dylan song and this notion of got to serve somebody showing up in that episode because of what's happening on screen. That's an example where that was in the script and we knew that would be magical. We have a character quote the song and then the song shows up later, which is something we do sometimes. But there, it really does have a creative effect. So that, you know, obviously the whole episode builds to using the Dylan song. But as a shout out to our younger selves, recently Chuck Klosterman made a list of the best Van Halen songs of all time. And I, I love Chuck and I, I know him a long time. I respect and admire him. But he put And The Cradle of Rock, like, really in the middle. And I think And The Cradle of Rock is probably the third best Van Halen song. And for me, as you know, Van Halen made six albums. And then they made a seventh album many, many, many years later. There are no albums of Van Halen that feature Sammy Hagar, in my mind. And so using And The Cradle of Rock, you know, Dave and I grew up going to see Van Halen. They were super important to us in high school. And so getting to put that song in that situation just was fucking awesome and nothing better for us than watching a guy break things while he's listening to well we're where we're blasting Van Halen from the center
0: I think that's a and this is probably a dynamic you think about a lot but like for you and for Dave like that's a really important song you love that song you love that band that means a lot to you and you get this huge kick out of using it outside of the narrative context whereas for me viewer who's really into the show I could not give any less of a shit about Van Halen it's not an important band for me at all I've heard that song before, means nothing to me, but I love that moment in the episode. Thanks, yeah, that's great, right? Suddenly that song for you as a listener takes on
1: a different context and comes alive in a certain way, and so that's great. But look, this stuff is all incredibly personal. I mean... That's really what you're getting to, and it's what I love about your podcast, Jeremy. And, you know, what I think is so great about you as a person, as we've become quite friendly over these years and I've gotten to know you, is, you know, you're not interested in the surface stuff, man. You're interested in getting down underneath it and getting into what it is about these albums that allows them to burrow into our souls and then what that does to our souls as we intermingle, right? As we commingle with the the music. And one of the things I think about those albums... Is that you get the sense that while the artist did hope with all their heart that the music would connect they weren't pandering to an audience they weren't changing something essential about what they did to satisfy a commercial audience they were making their music in the hopes that there were kindred spirits out there so dave and i are trying to do the same thing on the show we are trying to tell the story that we want to tell in the way that we want to tell it we want to use the elements that mean a lot to us and that we find moving in the hope that this juxtaposition of image and sound and story will create something that's better than we are individually and that will somehow rise to commingle with people in their deepest places and so yeah on the one hand in the cradle rock is a goof. On the other hand, there's something primal about that song and about what it meant at a certain time, about its bombasticness, that said something about a kind of a hedge fund person breaking valuable shit in the middle of the night because he would rather do that than have to plumb the depths of his psyche, which is what's going on in that episode. And so, yeah, you can receive it on any level that you want to receive it as long as we intend it in a pure and and truthful way in the art that we're making.
0: Great. There's sort of a related thought to that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but there are some of these songs that I'm sure you have a relationship with which is like you feel like the way I feel about this song because it's relevant to my life experience or just because I feel like I have a different point of view on it is I perceive this song in a very specific way and I can create that feeling in other people by the way I use it in a special way in the show.
1: Well, sure, as we were talking before separately about visions of Johanna, but there are many examples of that. Yeah, I think I'm probably not, what I'm mostly trying to do is, yes, create a moment, right? David and I are trying to create moments that will stay with you, that will stay with us first, and that we hope will stay with you by using all these things I just mentioned, by using image and story and sound and, and music. And yeah, you're aware of the cultural baggage some songs have. And so you're aware of the sort of extra narrative qualities that they contain. But yes, you are hoping that in the moment, those things serve the emotional content as opposed to detract from it. And yes, sometimes, listen, when we can take a Mink DeVille song and use it for its swagger, but also juxtapose it with Spiros walking across the room in the first episode of the third season. What's wonderful is if you come to that not knowing anything, you're just probably like, what's that Lou Reed song that's playing? <laughs> yeah. But if you do know, if you're a rock geek, you get an extra appreciation for what's going on. You're like, oh, fuck, they just used Willie DeVille. And you probably think to yourself, wow, I always thought Spanish Stroll was a song that should have lasted much longer and people should know and also it's absurd because of the way Spiros is walking and what the song is saying and so we'll carry songs around with us we had spanish stroll on a list the season before and didn't use it and then finally an, an editor nick hui our editor one of our editors i'd made this list of songs and he saw spanish stroll on there and tried it in that spot and it was just perfect and so those are for me the, the moments that you're chasing after.
2: See the shape you're in. Finger on your eyebrow. And left hand on your hip. Thinking that you're such a lady killer. Think you're so slick. Well, alright.
0: 211, Golden Frog Time. Ah, yes. Even the Losers by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I would say, probably, you know, you're just talking about moments that stay with you. I would think for a lot of fans of the show, for sure. This episode is just all moments that stay with you, but particularly. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably the best
1: episode of the the series, and that's a perfect example of the story and the song coming together. We talked out the story, Dave and I. We wrote that episode. We came up with the story along with a writer of ours, Brian Chamberlain, and Dave and I wrote the episode, The Two of Us. I remember as the two of us were outlining and going back and forth, it occurring that the only song that could go with this was Even the Losers. And I I remember typing it in early and then knowing we had to go get that song. And then it was clear, you know, everything that we were thinking about related to the episode, we knew was going to tie into Even the Losers. And of course, it was right before Patty died. And the episode aired before Patty died, I think. And um, certainly we know that we got permission from him to use the song. And boy, were we glad that we did. Petty is an artist who mattered to us, as I described earlier, listening to Free Falling, and I guess I did that on the other podcast. But as all these things, or many of them do, it, it meant a lot to use a Tom Petty song in that context. Levine and I have been listening to him together since we were kids, again. And, you know, music is so much of the way David and I have always spoken to each other. You know, we became best friends when we were 14 years old, or he was 14, I was just turning 16, and he was almost 15. And we've always traded books and music and movies with one another we lived for times on opposite sides of the country and, and this is before the internet and you know I'd have to put an album in the mail to him or I'd have to write him a letter and tell him to go to the record store and get
0: a certain record and that was a big part of how we communicated sending the wax cylinders back and forth via carrier pigeon
1: yeah Exactly. No, so that's how we would communicate, you know, and, and, and Petty was an artist that meant a lot to Dave, I think, before he meant a lot to me, and I think I got into Petty probably because Dave was so into him, and to get to then use that song. And, like, when I say to get to use the song, you know, you pay an artist, publisher, to use the song, but to find a spot that honors the song, I think, in a way, is what you were asking about earlier, is uh we would try never to use a song like that if we couldn't honor its placement, if we couldn't do something that served it if we couldn't create a moment and a series of moments that in a way told the viewer celebrated it celebrated what's great about the song and you know that episode starts and ends with it and plays throughout i think it's a large part of the reason people think that that's the best episode in the series
0: i think that's a great point and i think it's one of the things something i appreciate but i'm sure it's something a lot of people appreciate about the show is that you don't do any like cheap cues or you you're never a lot of the time people will use a really famous or a really beloved piece of music as kind of a, a you know, band-aid over bad writing. Well, like we haven't earned this moment, so let's get a song that's just going to give the audience that emotion and slap it over the top of the scene.
1: I mean, music means too much to us to do that.
0: You know, and the show does too. I mean,
1: you know, we just try so hard to make the thing good, Jeremy. And we just want it, you know, where if we miss, it ain't for lack of trying. We're trying our best. And we're trying to really think about how to serve the story that we're telling and how to serve these characters you know we these collaborators we have these actors are extraordinary and you know we're trying to serve them in every one of these moments too you know you play the right song up against the actions of an actor and this other kind of magic happens the idea of doing just like sort of casual needle drops would never occur to us out our composer, Eskimo, Brendan Angelides, who's an incredible composer and whose music I first heard on a podcast, you know, and we were unable to find a composer for the show. We kept sort of trying things that didn't work. And I was walking down Hudson Street and I heard some Eskimo tracks on All Songs Considered. And I ran to the office and I was like, Dave, Dave, you gotta, you gotta hear this. And we put it on and I was like, this guy's the, gotta be the composer. And he, you know, most of the music on the show is written by Brendan, Eskimo. There are a couple songs, but largely it's the score that he creates in in dialogue with us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a point worth making. Like, there's, what's your actual running time? 50 minutes or something? Like 58. Yeah, 58 minutes an episode. And, three of those minutes might have a needle drop track on it
1: yeah I mean it could be more but
0: yes it's not more than
1: seven or eight minutes at most and the rest of the time there's some silent moments but I mean a lot of the time it's Brendan's music
0: yeah and it's not the kind of music that says notice me appreciate how good I've composed he completely gives himself to the task of making the scenes work
1: he's a very generous unselfish cat Mm. his music's great you should get his records they're really good I will beautiful instrumental records yeah
0: Season 3 Episode 7 And this sort of Ties back in With my podcast Because there's a Queens of the Stone Age Song On that episode And it's a scene Centering around Dan Soda Who plays Mafi Yes sir And was on this podcast After you connected us Talking about Queens of the Stone Age His favourite band
1: the distance between Dan Soder and Dudley Maffee is although Dan is not a bro Dan's a better person than Dudley Maffee but the truth is Dudley Maffee is probably as far as good people go the best you got on our show (laughs) and he's got the best heart that part was written for Dan you know I first met Dan when he was an open mic comic and Levine and I would have him up to our office and we'd Go when he was working in a restaurant before Dan became a famous comedian. And we created the part of Mephi for Dan. And so Dudley Mephi's favorite band is going to be Dan Soder's favorite band. And Dudley Mephi's favorite professional wrestler is going to be Dan Soder's favorite wrestler. But it was a real treat to get to use Queens of the Stone Age over Dan.
0: What was his reaction when you told him? You know,
1: so psyched. I mean, Dan Soder is one of the world's great people and fully appreciates all this stuff. So he loved
0: it, of course. You know,
1: he's just an amazing guy to work with, super prepared and smart and has a heart of.
0: I feel like this is something you've done a few times in the show is that you've found, well not found, people who were already really accomplished performers but people wouldn't necessarily think to use them in the way that you use them on the show. I'm thinking of like Alan Havy too is obviously like a legendary stand-up comic. Sure. But has never played this kind of part. Well,
1: I mean I got to give Matt Weiner credit. Havy had a huge run on Mad Men. But it's a very different part. A super different part but he had a huge run on Mad Men. But also, I mean as you know, Levine and I have known Havy since we were kids so Alan's 13 years older than I am but when we when I was 19 I was hanging out with him all the time in the, in the city when he was doing comedy and again that character was written for Alan yeah love that love to take somebody in who you know is good and then give them stuff that they can use
0: next episode actually season three episode eight which is called all the Wilburys yes sir and that's just wall to wall like I mean you must have known you were going to finish that episode with handle with care well a long of course time you yeah. got to the end of it
1: yeah, I mean, I love that we used Never Say Die to open the episode. Or not to open it, but you know, when you see Axe, it's to the Black Sabbath song Never Say Die at the beginning of that episode. Because again, it's Axe with this hard rock thing. But of course,. We'd always heard that story about Harrison and Petty deciding who were or weren't Willberries and Dylan, all of them. And that idea of somebody being either a Willbury or not, its well, it has been so fun to watch people in life start to use that after the show about whether in their little group somebody's a Wilbury or not. <laughs> and I think it's a fair standard. I think you and I could go down a list and tick off whether people are Willberries or not, and we'd mostly oh, yeah. agree. So when we had that notion, it was clear that that episode had to end with that Wilbury song. And then in the middle of the episode, Spiro says, you know, handle with care. That was on the day Dave and I whispered to him, say, we just came up with that notion in the room. We were like, say, handle me with care. And we knew then we were going to end the episode with that. Done the
0: first Wilburys album on no, the show? It was one of those records you would assume somebody would have done. I I, th- I just got a text from John Leventhal saying, Has anyone done Bridge Over Troubled Water? And I thought, Actually, nobody has done right. Bridge right. Over He's Troubled Water. He's perfect to do that. Yeah. But, you know, no one's done Rumors. No, like, no one's done Dark Side of the Moon. A bunch of those records you would have thought I'd have got to over the course of five years of What doing did Hayden show. do on your show? He did Zeppelin 4. Sure. Oh,
1: right. Of course he did. Yeah. Yes.
0: Which was great. But it, up until that point, no one had done Zeppelin 4. Well, you
1: know, his theory would be. I'm glad he did Zeppelin 4 cuz his big argument is that everyone wants to be cooler than that but really it's Zeppelin 4 and he's right. I would have done Zeppelin 3, you know what I mean, because I in his mind because I'd have to be sort of like cooler than to admit it's the one with Stairway to Heaven <laughs> on it. And, like, I did Nebraska with You're Not Born to Run.
0: Yeah. Episode 9 of Season 3, it's your Bob Dylan song of the season. It's it's all right, Mara, I'm only bleeding. You get to the start of the season now, and you're going, like, you've got that in the back of your head. Where are we going to find the Bob yeah, song? Yeah, Dave and
1: I are constantly talking about it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's another one, though, that was super clear, and that was in the writing. I'd say the three Dylan songs. So it's not always in the script. Sometimes it is. Like, even Garrett T. Capps' song, Born in San Antonio, which starts the first thing you see in Season 3. He's an unknown artist, and I remember hearing that song knowing about that character and us knowing, well, that's going on the show. That's going to start the season. And that was in the script. But often they're not scripted. We know there's going to be a song there. We'll script something, and that's not what it ends up being. It becomes another thing. But these Dylan songs are planned from the beginning. You know, we knew what that story that the guy was going to tell, Grigor, Malkovich's character. And so in a way we foretell it, we we set it up by when he was entering, that song's playing. You don't know he's going to tell a story about his mother, but we do. And so... That's just the beginning of that is just in there and it's starting to tell, to tell the story. And also that's a song that foretells a certain kind of doom. I mean, tells of it and also foretells it. And we wanted the introduction of this character to sort of have a certain ominous quality to it, but not ominous in an overwrought way, genuinely ominous and kind of disturbing and As it's all right, Ma is.
2: Our preachers preach of evil fates. Teachers teach that knowledge waits, can lead to hundred dollar plates. Goodness hides behind its gates. But even the president of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. And though the rules of the road have been lodged, it's only people's games. Hey, you got to dodge, and it's all right, Ma, I can make it. Advertising signs, that con you into thinking you're the one that can do what's never been done, that can win what's never been won. Meantime, life outside goes on all around you.
0: And I guess when you're using songs to comment, the sort of subtextually sometimes on the characters in a way that is playing off information that you have that the audience doesn't yet, there will be degrees in which different audience members who know these songs and don't know these songs—that's fine, appreciate That's great. it. That's
1: great because then later, you know, the song does kick back in after he's told that story. And so, look, I hope that someone will—the episode will sit there. They'll finish the episode. The song will be ringing out. It'll linger. And then maybe they'll go try to find it. You know, Josh Ritter's Homecoming, which ends season two. Boy, was that satisfying. Now, that was one where we had another song scripted, which I, I won't say what that was, but it didn't quite work. And we put Homecoming up, and every line, you know, our editor switched some things around with a picture and was like, I think I can make this match perfectly. And she did. As Marnie Mayer, the editor, was wonderful. And, and suddenly, everything landed. Everything lifted up, lifted off, and landed. And I mean, Ritter's song is... So evocative, so brilliant, so emotionally resonant. It just gave us the sweetest, softest landing for the end of our season. And then the satisfying thing is this sort of extra, as I said, extra narrative or outside of the scope of the show thing is it's really Dave and I being such fans of these artists. Then the next day or the next week, Ritter's song flies up the iTunes chart and we're just so happy that we could like help lift up a not that well-known... I mean, Josh is famous... To listeners of your
0: podcast, yeah,
1: but he's not he's not world famous, so to help raise that song's profile a little bit was great.
0: I would imagine that is one of the things you get tweeted at the most from people like what was that song or that that great song, like what was that at the end of this episode or whatever?
1: Yes, people always want to know though you know there is Shazam out there, and then also. There are all these people writing about the show who will talk about it, but I'm happy to talk about the music on the show and tell people and point them toward artists. I mean, for Garrett T. Capps, also that happened. And he was, I mean, Josh Ritter is super successful compared to where Garrett was before the show. He just starting out. And that also was great that all these people dug that. It's a great song. If you haven't heard Born in San Antonio by Garrett T. Capps, go over to Spotify and check it out.
0: remember I saw you, I think it must have been between seasons two and three, and you said, like, there's a song that's going to kick off the next season. You don't know it, but you're going to love it. You must have been talking about that. I sometimes. was,
1: for sure, talking yeah. about that. Did I say that on a podcast or just do you no, personally? No, no, just when we were talking. Oh, that's great.
0: I was walking around with my back to the, we were in the writer's room, and I was trying not to see the breakdown. The board of what was going to happen. Yeah. yeah, and you were just like, this is the only hint I'll give you about next season. On a different speed, Yes. episode 10 of season three, there's a strip tease, Ben Kim in the elevator to Hot in Here. Now, this is a very particular one because I'm imagining that like this would have been very difficult to change in post. So you kind of had to... Oh, well, Daniel Isaac
1: rehearsed the hell out of that. I mean, that was, with a choreographer, weeks of work for him. And so we would film his work with that song, and it was clear that it was going to... We thought of a couple other songs. Dave and I went back and forth and back and forth. It's one of those things, that moment, when we landed on Hot in Here, it was pretty clear to us it was going to have the desired effect, and then Daniel just kills it. I mean, that's an actor really going for it, and he, he kills it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's something that's like, you're trying to think, what would be the most mortifying moment for that the song that would be the least there has to be nothing whatsoever that could be considered cool about what he's doing there yeah
1: i mean that song really delivered in that spot man yeah
0: and then as of us talking the most recent episode of the show you use two sinatra songs and like sinatra is probably as identified with new york as any artist or possibly lou reed But you've sort of held off. I mean, a lot of people would have been filling every episode of this because it's such a New York show. Your opening shot is that shot of the island. But, you know, we would have heard New York, New York by now. We would have heard like a bunch of Sinatra songs. We
1: hadn't earned it yet. We we didn't feel like we'd earned it yet. And then, so that opening of Sinatra Live at At the the Sands, Sands.
0: Which is one of my favorite records.
1: The notion that we could have that announcer's voice introducing Frank and the band A man and his music. The man is Frank Sinatra. And the man is Frank Sinatra. Count Basie and his orchestra. And the yeah. man is Frank and then, you know, Sinatra ending and on Sinatra coming out there and saying, Look, you know, how did all these people get in, in my room in my room? We had that in our back pocket also a long time. Like, well it would be great to be able to deploy this, but it had to be just the right moment. And, you know, the season-ending episode feels like the right moment, and then that was the right setting. And then, of course, that whole sequence was choreographed to that song, so you knew that that song was going to be playing.
2: The Sands is proud to present a wonderful new show, a man and his music. The music of Count Basie and his great band... Frank Sinatra, how did all these people get in my room?
1: One for my baby, one more for the road was less clear. That almost was a couple different songs. But that seemed perfect for those, you know, Set Him Up Joe, for those three people sitting there at the end. And then getting to use Velvet Underground B-Side, because as you say, if Frank is one of the most New York artists, to get Lou to end the season and bring us into the next season with what he's talking about. I will say that was one of the hardest cues to land, because ducking Sinatra out and then knowing we wanted something that changed the mood that would get us into this conspiratorial fun of the spirit of Billions was really hard. We went through many, 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 many songs before landing on We're Gonna Have a Real Good Time Together. And We're Gonna Have a Real Good Time Together was on a playlist every season, all between each season, stacking songs and stacking songs and stacking songs and sharing that list with Dave and he's adding to it. And so that was on the big list, but it wasn't until the very last moment. But then as these things go, when we put it up there, it was clear that it was the right thing and then you know you never know you just put it out there and you hope that as i said earlier people will respond to it but people did i want to be really clear about it that for dave and me the joy in this is so enormous the joy in making it and the fact that people respond to it so when we're doing this stuff we really are determined not to lower our standards and to try our best to keep at it because we know the feeling of it's Sunday night and you're going to turn on your favorite show. And we want you to know, we want you to feel like it couldn't have been anything else. It had to be that moment. It had to be that song. We want it to land with a big thunk in your heart, you know? And as I said before, we miss. I'm sure we, you know, all artists miss. But that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, when we found we're going to have a real good time together, we felt like, oh, that is a chance to land like that for people.
0: Well, I can't wait for season four where now having earned sinatra and wanting to put dylan in every season it was great when you told me before we started recording that the entire season is going to be soundtracked by bob dylan sinatra tribute records i think that's going to be really yeah
1: that's going to be fantastic for people we're going to get brian ferry to go re-record a couple more dylan albums and use those no we have the song that starts the first episode and the song that ends the first episode are strong one of them is an all-time classic that you people won't think we're going to use. And the other is an almost unknown record from the 90s. And it it's going to land. I, I can't wait for people to see it.
0: Neither can I. Coming in sometime next year?
1: Is there a premiere date yet? Showtime hasn't announced it yet. But you're sitting here on our soundstage. You saw a rehearsal of a scene. You can see it's happening. Yes, we're, the we're, show we're is hard definitely being made. We're hard
0: on it. Trying yeah. our best. Well... Whenever it comes, looking forward to season four of Billions and to the many musicians and other guests coming up on The Moment, which I was binging through some old episodes again, actually, in the last couple of days, oh, so thanks, listening man. to some old ones again.
1: Yes, my podcast, The Moment. I don't blather on as much on my podcast as I do on Jeremy's, so come on and give it a shot, people. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Jeremy.
2: We're going to have a real good time.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash my favourite album. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.